Hey everyone, exciting announcement here from the Blockworks Podcast Network. We are hiring two podcast hosts to build a show with us called Lightspeed. The TLDR of Lightspeed is that it is a show for builders, tinkerers, and lovers of technology. It's a callback to the heyday of Silicon Valley where great tech was built in garages, not in corporate fortresses, and was truly the Wild West. Lightspeed is an exploration of crypto from the perspective of a builder and an engineer who's designing for scale and is interested in onboarding the next billion users into crypto. If this show sounds exciting to you, you have a background in podcast hosting or content creation, go to the careers page of BlockWorks. That's blockworks.co slash careers. I've also linked it in the show notes here. You can just click there. I'll take you right to the page. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm Mike Ippolito underscore. You can just slide right into my DMs and we'll set up some time to talk. We'd love to hear from you. We are super, super excited about this show. So please apply. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by repeat guest Julian Brigden, who is the co-founder of MI2. Julian, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a, we've got a lot of ground to cover and... Um, you know, not as much time as I would ultimately like. I'm sure we could do this for four hours, but uh, I'm sure we're going to just have to make it work in, in the time allotted. So you've, you've put out a couple of really interesting research pieces lately, sort of culminating in the topic du jour of the US dollar. And I want to make sure that we've got enough time to get there. But you kind of started things out by talking about a credit crunch and sort of what your what your framework is for looking at at credit right now. Can you give us kind of the, the high level of, of that? Sure. Point? I mean, so... Better to be lucky than smart. So we put a piece out the week before SVB um, <laughs> talking about a credit crunch. And I think, you know, look, this is how tightening financial conditions are supposed to work, right? We are supposed to uh, tighten credit, right? And I think some of the, you know, I like, I've used this analogy a couple of times, but I think it really is apropos. So if you're a James Bond fan, and you're probably too young to remember. Um, I'm glad I'm on a blurry camera. I don't know what the hell is going on there. But uh, it's my birthday today and I'm feeling a little old. And so to get rid of the lines. But the point is, if you go back in time, <laughs> you go back in time and there's a movie called GoldenEye. And in GoldenEye, there is a young Alan Cummings and he plays this annoying Russian programmer called Boris who thinks he's the bee's knees and nothing's ever going to go wrong. And the classic sort of end of the Bond movie, as every Bond movie goes, there's a whole bunch of explosions and the world blows up around Cummings and he thinks, he looks down and he thinks he's going to be dead, but actually he's alive, all right? And he stands up and he screams, I am invincible, <laughs> okay? And right that second, the liquid nitrogen tanks behind him burst and he's turned into a popsicle. And I think this is this whole concept about this no landing, soft landing stuff that we got at the beginning of the year. And I think it is purely in that same way that people looked around. They looked at 400-odd basis points of rate hikes. They looked at an equity market that was still up there. They looked at consumer that was still strong. They looked at business earnings that were still robust. And they screamed, I am invincible. And they forget that monetary policy works with a lag and it is coming. And so we got that great, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had all that hand-wringing about the big drop in uh, bank lending. OK, but there were leading indicators that lead by at least six to nine months that told you that was coming mm. and it's still coming. And we haven't even seen the effects of SVB, right? The, further, the best, you know, only probably beginning next month will we have some indication of what's really happening. We had anecdotal 
evidence. I think there was a Reuters article, I'm trying to dig it up, where they were interviewing a CEO of a bank, a small regional bank, and he said, you know, I was came into this year thinking I should cut lending 50% anyway. I think I need to cut it another 50%. And so I, this is all coming. And we've seen these things in the past. Credit cycles are what leads the economic cycle pretty much, especially in a world that's so hyper-financialized like our own, right? So yeah. I think, you know, this idea that we weren't going to get a credit cycle was just ridiculous. That's how monetary policy works. We were going to get one. It's starting. SVB's made it worse. And it's coming on top of other cycles and other problems that we've got economically. So I, I'm sorry, but I'm in the hard landing camp. I find it very hard to believe anything but that. Yeah. All right. That's that's really helpful, Julian, and a very helpful analogy for the uh, the golden eye villain. You know, because I I've been wondering myself uh, the same thing. I've not been in the the no landing or, or necessarily even soft landing camp, and but it does seem at the same time like we're in this sort of weird either eye of the storm or purgatory sort of situation where prices are kind of levitating, but you also have banks that are imploding and a Fed that right. is, you know, still indicating that they're going to hike rates. Right. You know, and But still providing, you know, greater liquidity to the system. Right. And we know, right. I mean, it's certainly my view, and I've been in this camp for a long time, that the Fed has created a crack addict to whom they've become beholden. Right. And they are the supplier of the crack and they just boosted the crack. Guess what? I mean, you know, there's there's no greater proof that fundamentals don't really count when it comes to asset prices than COVID, mm. right? We were literally going to end the world. We were all going to die, right? And asset prices went up. Why? Because yeah. we printed a shitload of money, right? 100%. Right? You know, I'm, 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 so, so what, so, Give listeners kind of like walk them through what are the stages of a credit cycle and and I just want to also re rewind the clock like you know you heard Chair Powell talk about the impact of stress in the banking sector as being equivalent he said it's impossible to quantify but could be equivalent to something like a rate hike right so you've got the global the central bank right that's that's intentionally trying to limit credit and now we've had the commercial banking the commercial banking system say hold on a second, there's an enormous amount of stress and we are going to ration credit to a much uh, stricter degree. But but for, for audiences who are listening, kind of give them the canonical sense of what a credit cycle typically looks like and then any changes that might be applicable to this particular cycle. The the way that banking is a, is a con trick at the best of times, right? You borrow money, you lend a lot more than you've, than you've, um, than you can provide back you, or you take that money, you, you lend it and it's not going to be available because you lend it for, a, you know, you do this time maturity kind of extension duration trade where you borrow it short and you lend it long. You hope that n not everyone comes and asks for their money back at the same time because you definitively can't provide that <laughs> money, right? And so, but what really dictates the amount of money you lend is obviously the profitability of that lending, right? So... The way that money banks make their money is they borrow short and they hope to borrow at a very low rate by paying you tuppence, you know, to borrow your money. And then they lend it out for many, many dollars further down the curve because you have a steep curve. So what starts the credit cycle in terms of the tightening is when the central bank starts to raise those short term rates and the curve starts to 
flattened, right? Bear flattened. So short-term rates rise. That's a bearish move in the bond market. It's a bear flattener. And then what ultimately really crunches the banks is when the curve inverts, right? Because mm. they're funding themselves at the front end of the curve. Now, the good news is, is certainly up until recently, they haven't had to pay you anywhere close to Fed funds, right? You, we all know we'd look at our deposit account and we're like, what, 50 basis points, 25 basis points, you know, and Fed funds are four and a half. What is going on, right? Well, they weren't doing that because they didn't have to in some cases, but then all of a sudden we've just seen everyone went, oh, look where money market rates are. Thank you. Mm -hmm. from, take their cash and put it in, into the market. So that's the process, right? It's not profitable for banks. It's very hard for banks to lend money profitably. If they can borrow at half a percent and lend it at three, great. But when they're paying three and lending it at three and a half, the profit margin isn't there. The risk reward is no longer there. And that's what tightens the, the credit cycle. And that's where we've got. Add in, you know, deposit flight from some of these banks and you have already a problem. But as I said, this was already happening even before SVB. SVB mm. is just the cherry on the cake, right? It's, it was already happening. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. It was. So So. So. where do you see, I mean, give us like a, a little bit of a timeline here in terms of how long this is going to play out in your mind. And then I, I want to transition to, you know, the second part of your framework in in, uh, in writing, which was the housing market. So right. if you could just give us kind of a timeline so, on so credit look, cycle. It, and it depends on exactly where it is, but it, it ripples its way right across. So clearly it starts to hit the interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy, housing, you know, Big ticket items. I think we're going to see auto sales start to deteriorate quite quickly because cost of an auto loan has gone up. Combine sure. that with the fact that the car companies have marched up the cost of a car 50% over the last 10 years, right? So all of those things start to tighten it. It'll hit um, corporate capex. It'll hit uh, CNI loans. So commercial industrial loans. It will hit Commercial real estate, we've, that's a big one. We know as that comes up to maturity, right, the, the owners of that debt have to renegotiate the cost. They've got a certain return on or cap rate that they're getting from their building. They'll look at it. It'll either make sense or it won't make sense, right? And I think in many cases, it's not going to get make sense. But the point is, this is a relatively slow process, but it hits everything. Right? Yeah. It is a it's classic saying, you know, monetary policy is a blunt tool, but it just hits everything, every node, right? It's going to ripple all the way through the economy. And I think it should, I mean, I'm, I've sort of stuck my balls on the line a bit and said, I think we'll get a negative non-farm payroll number by mm. July. So the June print that we get in July, 
And I think things are slowing pretty dramatically because we're starting to see credit start to time. That's how it works. Mm. Now, could could you just for for listeners, we've talked about this on the show before, but just explain again why housing is so tied to the economy. So outside of just sort of the wealth effect and you yep. know people's wealth being tied up in their homes and the connection between that and interest rates, talk a little bit about the the place of housing in the economy. How should people so be thinking about that? Look, when you when you look at it in absolute terms, it's probably about twenty percent. You can throw bits in, other bits in, you know, a bit more. But it's very much tied to the cycle, kind of to the animal spirits, to the people's sense of wealth effect, to employment. It's very heavily uh, correlated, uh, typically. You know, unless you're in a period of extremely extreme fiscal spending, mm. right? So we've seen those like Vietnam War, Reagan's defense spending. Um, we saw them post the GFC, where government steps in, or COVID, obviously. Where government steps in and they just they fill any gap left by that kind of underlying housing type, uh, and it, because it's also interest rate cycle, it goes one and the same with all these other things, right? So it tends to be a pretty decent, solid indicator um, of wealth, consumer spirits, and underlying activity. I mean, there's a great um, there was a rocket mortgage ad which they did in the Super Bowl a few years ago, and it was like. You know, wouldn't it be great if you, it was really easy to get a mortgage because then you could go and you could buy, you know, new furniture to fill your house. And the guy who makes the hand uh, turned legs on your new settee could also get a mortgage and blah, blah, blah. And, and the cl- concluding line was, and isn't really that what America's all about, right? In other words, we build houses, we put people in them and we sell them shit. And the answer is yes. It's pretty much like that. So it's a, it's an important indicator. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And you know that that housing is you know we talked about kind of the stock market levitating a little bit more than I than I thought it would. And I, I have to I have to say you know I don't I'm not you know very studied on every single sector of, of housing yeah. in the United States, but broadly you know I live here in in New York and rent hasn't changed hardly at all. Uh, price of homes hasn't changed very much. You know why why have we seen house prices be so stubborn? Well, I think because it it's partly works with the lag. I mean, I, I I think, look, there's no question that we do face a housing shortage, right? But we've been facing that really since 08, 09. I've heard that same argument on many uh, occasions since that period. Um, the problem is, is we face a bigger affordability issue, mm. right? There's many, many kids, you know, your age and and younger who would like to be owning a house, right? It's about time. They want to get in. They're preparing to have the kids, right? It's great to live in, you know, in Weehawken or Hoboken, right, which are near you. And when you're young and you you get with your girlfriend, you go out and party like rock stars. And then the first kid comes along and you're like, we can do this. We can do this, darling. We can live in the urban little, you know, one bedroom, right? Then the second one comes along. Carnage, right? Get me out, right? Get me out. Well, the problem is, is, you know, it's a Affording that first starter home has become extraordinarily expensive. And I think, you know, um, so we've got some of that coming through. And I think there is demand, but people just can't afford it. The cost of the house multiplied by the lack of relative income growth is starting to come through, but not enough, right? 
and the cost of rates means that affordability is just being atrocious. So, yeah. yeah, there's lots of people who want houses. Absolutely true. Can they afford them? No. So it's bloody academic, right? Unless something else comes along and massively reduces the cost, right? A new house is considered, let's say, five years from now, a cardboard box with a piece of plastic over the top. Maybe we can afford it, right? But the point is, is as we build houses right here, right now, houses are unaffordable. And so my concern is, is when I look at this, we've built quite a lot of homes. Mm. They're actually in the pipeline. Um, if you look at houses under completion, uh, they're actually at 55, 60 year highs. Yeah. Um, you would think it would be a long sort of standard upslope upsloping upsloping line but it isn't it really is a bit of a sine wave you know we kind of build up here we we stop building down here we built 43 percent more homes since the summer of covid to accommodate that great migration and those houses are slowly coming and starting to hit the market and they're hitting a market where affordability is poor so my supposition is we are they're going to sell but then people aren't going to be building a new home behind that and so mm. what I'm looking for is not a collapse in the housing market. I think prices will adjust a little bit. I mean, by my reckoning, 10% nationally, house prices. But what you're going to see is a significant slowdown in activity. Mm. And that, you know, particularly when I look at things like multifamily, where, you know, if you look at the rental space, just the cap rate, the, the profit that a, a builder could make, actually building multifamily is not there at the moment, which probably tells you that your rent is probably going up again at some point. Um, and somehow you're going to have to redress that balance. But I think you go into a period where actual new activity in the housing space slows materially. And that yeah. will weigh on the economy too, along with that credit cycle. So, all right. So we've got a credit cycle that is just beginning to start, right? Not great for the economy. We've got a housing market that maybe there's going to be lower activity for a period of time, maybe houses dip or something up to 10%, but it's certainly not going to be the stimulative force on the economy that it's been Correct. since 2020 or 2021. Okay. Now, the next uh, sort of component of your your framework that you've laid out is inventories. Talk to us yes. a little bit about inventories. So, so look, I mean, you know, since 1985, we've lived in this period that they called the Great Moderation, right? So mm -hmm. this period of relatively low uh, volatility in the underlying economic cycle. Um, obviously, we've had exceptions to GFC and COVID, but outside that, the volatility of the underlying cycle has materially been lower than prior to that. And one reason purported for that is um, better inventory management, right? We shifted from to this just-in-time inventory management. We globalized everything. Everything arrived like on a fine-tuned basis. Like I need my, you know, it's like the baton race, right? Yeah. The relay. You put your hand back, it's there. You don't look, it's there. You just run, right? I need the components. They're just there. The inventory chain is so efficient, it's just there. Well, COVID blew that to hell. And now deglobalization is layering onto that. So what did we do? We massively overordered, right? Mm. We moved to just in case and just in time. We pulled forward demand. Now, some of that may be permanent. Okay. All right. Fine. So be it. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is we are living, particularly when you look at the inventory side, 
uh, sorry, the uh, retail side of the economy are living with extraordinary high levels of retail inventory still at this point. And as demand is starting to slow and it's being hidden, right? This is one of those other little secrets of the equity market. The equity market trades off nominal levels of activity, right? Not, not inflation adjusted, right? Profits are nominal. So classic example, Procter & Gamble, profits last quarter rose, I think, 6 to 7%. How did they achieve it? Well, they raised prices 10, which means that the volume of their sales dropped 3. Now, for Procter & Gamble, not a problem, right? Their revenues were up 6 to 7. Woohoo, happy days. But when you start to roll that across the whole economy, in an economy that's already got a lot of inventory, you're talking about your units of sales falling three. So if you've got high levels of inventory and your units of sales are dropping, your inventory problem is getting worse, not that much better. And the next thing you have to do as a firm is cut production. So you cut your production 3% and your employment 3%. And that's why it becomes a problem. As I said, just Procter & Gamble do it, no problem. But yeah. right across the whole economy, all of a sudden you've cut employment 3%, you've got a problem, right? And that's why. Yeah. that, And this is the, the bullwhip effect. Right. Yeah. Michael Burry was talking about this a little bit earlier. So can can you give us a sense of how how bad is this? How bad is this problem? I mean, today? look, I think one we've got to be a little careful, right? The last real recession that any of us really lived through was 08, 09. And that was a credit slump, we would hope, of a of of, of a century-like epic proportion, right? Mm. I don't think it's going to be like that. I just think it's going to be a shitty, nasty recession, right? The average rise in unemployment in a post-war recession is 3.3%. So unemployment to 7%, right? Everyone might go, oh, my God. <laughs> That's what fucking happens, ladies and gentlemen, right? It, 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 it doesn't, you know, the Fed's fictitious bit of political kabuki theater, which I call it, Right, their, mm -hmm. their central economic forecasts, their SCPs, are a fairy tale. It's never happened, right? We've never had this. What they are proposing is happening. Unemployment is going to go from three and a half to four and a half. Then it's going to sit there for three years and we're not going to go into recession. Well, mm. you go much more than half a percent in unemployment. You've always been in a recession. And unemployment doesn't just go to four and a half, and then goes sideways. It go, keeps going until you do something much harder to stop it. Why are they forecasting this? Because they don't want to get into trouble with the politicians and say, uh, mm. yeah, we do intend to break the back of the labour market because that's how you break the back of inflation. And so in that sense, I have to say, for the first time in my life, I agree with Elizabeth Warren, and she was absolutely right when she grilled Powell and said, it doesn't stop there, right? It just keeps going, right? Once we get to four and a half, it won't stop there and there'll be a lot of people unemployed. And he went, ah, she was right. Yeah. Hey, you know what? When she's right, she's right. I've got a question before we get into the unemployment. I've got yeah. a question for you about inventories. So I, I before, before uh, 
doing this at Blockworks. I, I used to be a consultant, and one of the things we did was these inventory management projects. And I remember actually a, a tenant of inventory being the longer your lead time is, the longer the stock of inventory that you need. Just kind of makes follows logically, right? If it takes uh, you know, 20 weeks, right, or 21 weeks for you to ship something, you know, you have to keep much more on hand in case Correct. everyone wants that, as opposed to let's say a one day lead time. Yeah. So I'm just kind of trying to think through this reorganization of the supply chain into something that looks a little bit more multipolar. And I haven't heard anyone talk about this, so I'm I'm a little worried that I might be be publicly wrong here or have a, a false train of thought. But if we end up shifting a bunch of production away from China, Vietnam, to something that feels a little bit more local, a bit of reshoring. Maybe it's not United States domestically, but it's yeah, Mexico or something NASA, like that, right? You know, a bit of Europe, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Shouldn't that end up being good? Actually, shouldn't that mean that we should hold less inventories longer term? You know, because I mean, we have- argu- Arguably, if you can get it that efficient, if you can build it all in your back garden, essentially, you know, right. and you just ship it into the local street, sure, then it is. It's the, it's the process, I think, of getting there. And it's also, yeah, yeah. you know, our ability to get hold of certain things, right? I mean, we don't, it's going to take us an awfully long time to rebuild North American industry or European industry to the point that we have all the components that are now plentiful in China. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. And it's going to take a long period. And long period of time, an enormous amount of friction to get from heater there. And, you know, it doesn't really impact your, your original point, which was currently we have an inventory built up and we're going to need right. to find a way to work through that. Right. And the, and the other problem is, is it's not very profitable spending, right? I mean, this is, right. this is not, we're not going to really boost productivity by bringing it back on shore. You know, it's a bit like the, you know, it's great that we're building, you know, green energy now. But from a purely economic perspective, it isn't productive spending because coal, arguably, is just, if not more effective than wind, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's a choice. And it's all spending that has to be spent. It's all money that has to be raised. It's all debt that has to be financed to not really advance, you know, grow the pie that much more. Maybe better pie? Unquestionably. Bigger pie? Eh. Mm. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you all for listening to On The Margin. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up about a conference that we have coming up in the new year called Permissionless. I'm sure most of you have been there last year. Uh, It is the cultural event of the year. We had over 5,500 people down in Palm Beach. This year, we are moving to Austin, Texas. You know what they say about Texas? Everything's bigger in Texas. Uh, so last year, we had a really great lineup of speakers. We had the two co-founders of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bot. We had Chris Dixon. We had some of the folks that have been on the show a whole bunch of times, Jim Bianco, Dan Tapiero. Just a phenomenal lineup of speakers, and you can expect the same this year. If you use Margin 10, you will get 10% off on a ticket. Again, that's Margin 10, because I love you guys so much. Click the link at the bottom of the show notes. Hope to see you there in person. Yeah. All right. So let's just to recap everything again. Basically, we've got a situation where credit is going to begin to contract. Housing market has at the, is at the very least cooling off, yep. probably going down from here. And we've got an inventory buildup. The last sort of the last piece of this, you know, that you've written about is the U.S. dollar. And it's funny. Yep. It's kind of like all roads, all roads lead to Rome. All roads, all macro roads lead to the U.S. dollar. So. Right. Take us home. Why is that the last uh, part of what you're focused so, on? So, so look, I mean, you know, it's we've seen these periods in history before where, and they're quite common, right? Where, you know, you create these bubble-like conditions, you create a flow of liquidity, 
you create, you wrap a narrative around the price action. So it's, you know, don't get me wrong, there's a kernel of a good narrative that starts the price action, but you tend to exaggerate the, you fit the, the narrative to the price action rather than the other way around. Right? Yeah. I get calls from journalists and many of them, of the younger ones are like, so how do you explain today's up move in the equity market rather than what do you think is going to happen tomorrow, right? Mm. So they, they're constantly chasing the price action. So you, you create this, this price action, the price action becomes self-fulfilling, um, in a true Soros-esque type sense, it becomes reflexive. So the, the, the purchase of the asset associated with the price action reinforces the uh, narrative supporting the price action, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we've had one of those periods in the US, right? The dollar started to rise in 2011, accelerated again in 2014. And as part of that, um, that started to suck in money into the US, all right? The, as the money sucked into the US, um, it goes into equities, makes the US equity market even more attractive, goes into corporate debt, corporates take that money, buy back equity, buy back equity, equity market becomes even more attractive. Um, wealth effects stimulates uh, growth here in the US, Fed raises rates, dollar becomes even more attractive, right? Economy booms, we suck in even more imports, funded by, you've guessed, even more activity right from foreigners. So all of this thing leads to this big influx of cash into the United States, right? Now, we've seen this before. We saw it into Japan, heading up into the highs of the Nikkei bubble uh, in the 80s. We saw it in Australia from 2009 to 2013, where you get this really positive virtuous cycle and underlying currency trend. And the underlying currency trend is important world because it sucks in all the world's cash, right? There's nothing more than overseas investors love than two for one. A rising currency that they're investing in, in this case, in our case, dollars, mm. and an outperforming US asset market. Woohoo! Two for <laughs> one, right? So this becomes, the, the momentum becomes enormous. The inertia becomes exceedingly strong. And this can carry on for a long, long time. But it is almost by definition an unstable, stable equilibrium because it is dependent on three kind of variables. The first variable is it's dependent on a strong U.S. economy because if we go into a recession akin to the one we've just described, we won't need, we won't have such a large current account deficit that's usually associated with a booming economy and an inability of your own domestic industry to satisfy those demands, right? So we won't have such a large current account deficit as the consumer goes back into their shell. And to some degree, the money that we have here now invested funding that from foreigners, it has to come from foreigners to fund that deficit, just goes home. We just don't need it anymore, right? Now that weighs on US asset markets because that's where the money is. And it weighs on the dollar because it's over here unhedged in dollars. Second thing that could go wrong, or we could walk in tomorrow and the US equity market could just drop, right? It could prove to be a bubble and it bursts. Okay. I think there's elements of that, right? We've gone from a statistically impossible, if you look at the US equity market versus its peers, uh, at the highs of 2021, we were five standard deviations above our peers. Well, that's statistically nigh on impossible, 
The good news is we're only three standard deviations above our peers at the moment, which is only <laughs> statistically improbable. Okay, so 0.3% of the time. Okay, mm. so maybe the equity market just drops. Or, and oh, it's worth noting that US equities actually, in from a foreigner's perspective, are already underperforming their own domestic mm. equities, particularly in Europe. Okay. Option number three is the dollar starts to fall. Because if the dollar starts to fall, as I said, Foreigners have funded our current account deficit. Thank you very much indeed. But they funded it in euros, which they've taken those euros, sold those euros, bought US assets. That's how they funded it. So they have this massive unhedged currency exposure to a falling dollar. So if they're looking at a combination of underperforming US assets, because the European equity market is rising more than the US equity market, and oh shit, the euro's actually rising, not falling. The dollar's falling. So I've got this NASDAQ investment in dollars, which when I translate it back into euros is doing worse than if I'd have put my money into the CAC or the DAX, yours. And I think that's kind of where we are. You know, and as the Fed has to face this recession, as they have to, if, as they're juggling this difficulty of, financial stability versus their inflation fighting credibility doesn't make the dollar overly attractive. And I'm not, please don't get me wrong, I'm not in that Machiavellian, it's the end of the dollar as the reserve currency, it's going away, we're all going to be trading in renminbi or blockchain. I'm like, no, you're not. Mm -hmm. Okay. What, what logical person on the planet is going to want to own, you know, the currency of a at best, benevolent dictatorship, at worst, an autocratic dictatorship. No one, right? Mm -hmm. And But it doesn't mean the dollar can't fall in value. This thing has fallen 50% in 72. Then it fell like 45% after Plaza. Then it fell like 38% uh, from 2002 to 2008. So maybe it just falls 35%, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, we know it's cheap to go to Europe on holiday. <laughs> yeah, I I actually was over in Europe in London in November of last year. That was about the period of time where it was almost parity in between the yeah, pound you were like, and the dollar. I was like, woohoo, let's go. I uh, felt very cheap. But yeah, it's, it's a very interesting idea, idea Julian and and the that sort of reflexive nature between US economy and especially the bond market and the US dollar yeah. is not something that I'd fully grasped until until recently. So just to kind of put that into into kind of solid terms and if I could ask you to kind of dust off your your crystal ball here. You know, how do you see that sort of playing out over the course of the next couple of years? Do you expect a relatively weaker dollar, relatively weaker US economy or let's Call it stock market too. If we can maybe differentiate between the strength of the economy, which seems to be definitely in right. decline, and we're in a down cycle, how is that going to translate to assets? So, so look, logic would dictate well that if you have a weak currency, right, you should have should have a strong stock market, right? Because you think your exports are cheaper. You know, it's all good. It doesn't really work like that. Mm. Um, currency strength, as I said, tends to attract funds. So I think certainly. As a dollar investor, what we're going to do, I suspect, is when we look back in four to five years' time, we're going to go, Jesus Christ, do you know, 
I'd have been better having my money in the bloody French equity market or in emerging markets or in precious metals than I would have done in the NASDAQ, right? I mean, if you, if you look at the price action of the NASDAQ since the dollar started to rise, it's been the only place to have your money. If you looked at your, the price action of the NASDAQ from 2001, from 2002 really to 2008 when the dollar last declined, it was the worst place to have your money. It the was. worst place to have your money. The best place to have your money was in emerging markets, um, in commodities, and then in pretty much any other non-US equity market. Mm. Okay, Just because the currency makes a big difference. And so I think that's what, when we look back, that's where I think we're going to go. You can already see it. Um, if you look at the, you know, the, the stocks 50 in, in Europe, right? Um, it's outperforming the S&P in Euro terms, clearly. Mm. Um, the one that we've got on, which is a bit of a cheeky one, and, and because it's just moved so damn much, is we're actually, we recommended for the MI2 client, uh, client base is long uh, IBEX, so the Spanish market in mm. Euros, short the NASDAQ. That's a cheeky trade. Yeah, I mean, this thing's gone from like one to 12 as a ratio over the last decade. Mm. I think it just go, could go back to six, right? Yeah. You know, I, that that was, the, I mean, being five standard deviations off anything is, you know, to use statistically impossible. Even three right. is, you know, wildly, wildly expensive. So yes. At some point, mean reversion is a very powerful factor, right? It's yeah, like and look, it's 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 just you know, the world. It's very mechanical. The world, right? I mean, it is. You know, if you look at it, it is like a ledger, right? If you borrow this, you have to fund it from somewhere else. Where do you fund it from? How do you fund it? What do they buy when they fund it? And that's basically what we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's the world just is never linear. It's mm -hmm cycles around a trend. Sometimes those cycles are nice predictive ones. Sometimes they could be very volatile ones. I'm afraid I think we're moving to a more volatile cycle around the trend. So, you know, to my mind, you know, this is where macro comes into its fore because it doesn't tell you not to be investing in the equity market, right? Everyone always sort of says, you know, oh, you macro guys, you're all so bloody negative, right? You've got to be invested to make money. Absolutely. Not saying you can't. But which equity market? Where do you put your money is really determined by the macro, not by the micro of the corporate results. And I'm telling you now, if the dollar falls for the next four to five years, which, as I said, this would only be the fourth time. We've only had floating currencies, you know, since 72, right? So it's only been 50 years where we've had three big dollar declines. If this is the fourth, NASDAQ ain't where you want to be for the next five years. You know what, Julian? I would completely tend to agree with you. And, you know, I, I I am interested to see NASDAQ, and let's call it not even large cap growth, which I think is becoming more value-ish, right? More focused right. on profitability and cash flow. But man, for so long, the valuation of these high growth, you know, low cap tech stocks has just been nuts. And right. we will see, I, I think there's probably some of those companies that can turn it on and they can turn off the growth spigot a little bit and actually start to realize some profitability. Sure. Probably a large amount of them won't. And then we'll see right. when the rubber meets the road, which ones are the 
the right ones to take the bets on. But but I would argue that junior gold miners or silver miners might do just as well, right? You might be a gold looks, you know, I'm I'm not a TA guy. I will, I will be the first to say that. But if you look, pull up the chart of gold right now and look at it for the last 10 years, it is forming an absolutely beautiful cup and handle pattern. Yes, and uh, correct. it looks like looks primed to explode. Correct. But, and and against the S&P on a log chart, it's starting to break just like it did in 2003 and mm-hmm. outperform. So I think, you know, that's all I would say is, is look, don't get me wrong. I mean, I have a buy signal on the S&P. I'm yeah. not buying the S&P. I'm buying other things, right? To mm-hmm. me, that buy signal S&P is purely a function of the Fed liquidity provision. And I would rather allocate my tiny weeny portion of that liquidity provision into something else. Mm. You know what? That's very fair. And the, on the last, the kind of closing question that I want to ask you, just because you you brought up the Fed, is this was something we were starting to get into before we recorded. But a couple of months ago, listeners on the marginal know we brought on uh, analyst Warren Pies, and he was describing this sort of contradiction in markets right now, which is if you think of the two sayings that I think are the most widely accepted on Wall Street's don't fight the Fed and don't fight the tape. Well, mm-hmm. you know, your liquidity indicator just is signaling to you now is the time to buy, right? But on the other hand, you've got the Fed that they've moved past their banking crisis. They are still going to hike rates. And the Fed is telling you not to buy. So you have these right. two. It's like an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. So right. what do you do when you have these two uh, contrasting indicators? Well, look, I think you go with you go with the tape, right? I mean, you have no choice but to go with the tape, right? Um you know, the Fed will have to get to head of, ahead of the tape if they want to, right? I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I'm really struggling with being long. As I said, I'm preferring to be long other things. I have my finger on the trigger to be relatively long other things. So by that, I mean, if I start to see things falter, there was something I was going to sell against the long that I already own, right? To have a ratio trade on, right? Because I'm a big believer that a lot of these ratios and these divergences, such as that three sack sigma standard deviation that we've got between US stocks and the rest of the world, can can correct in one of two ways. We can correct the nice way where the rest of the world just plays catch up and US stocks trade sideways for the next five years. Or we can trade the nasty way where US stocks drop and European and the rest of the world drop, but not as much. Yeah. Right. So, you know, that that's always an intellectual victory, but a very un- satisfying financial victory where you go, I'm only down 20% on my European stocks. You're down 50 on your US stocks. Ha, ha, ha. Right? I'm down 20. I don't want to be down 20. So the point is, is, look, I'm long things and I'm ready to sell some stuff if the tape falters. But for the moment, the tape isn't faltering. The Fed is being forced to compromise uh, on its objectives by events in the financial system. Does that persist? We will see. There are definitely risks to the liquidity situation, as we all know, and I'm sure have been discussed on your show uh, as we move into the second half of the year, right? As if we get a deal on the budget. Um, but I, I look at stuff, and to me, this is this is building to a six, late '60s kind of situation where the next shoe to drop, where we've had these waves of inflation, the Fed is being compromised on their ability to truly grind the inflation out of the system. Don't get me wrong, they're going to try. The credit crunch will definitively help. But to me, the next shoe to drop, if it does, is the dollar. And if it does, it's going to really complicate the hand of the Fed going forward. 
It's going to be very, very hard for them to wring inflation out of the system, which is what a weak dollar will encourage if we have just discovered that the financial system is as vulnerable as it is. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's as good of a place to leave it as any. Julian, I always love these these chats. If folks want to find out more about you, the good work that you do, what's the best way to follow you? Find out. So, more? Uh, you know, the easiest thing is to follow me on uh, on Twitter at JulianMI2. And then if you're interested in our research or the stuff that we do with uh, Raul and Macro Insiders on Real Vision, then uh, reach out to support at mi2partners.com. All right, Julian. Well, thank you very much for your time. As always, appreciate it. Thanks very much indeed.